So obviously, uh, Ed kind of stealing my thunder a little bit here, but we're in the doghouse with uh, Jerome Williams tonight, too. Jerome is going to be joining us right now. Jerome, how's it going? What's happening? Bobby what Edgar, what's happening, man? What's happening, man? I haven't seen you in forever. Come on, Edgar. You know how we get down. NYC all day. NYC, <laughs> all the Knicks, everybody, everybody all day. So that's good. JYD, I'm going to call you JYD, the businessman now. Because every time <laughs> you're tired, you making things happen. Boy, you making things happen. <laughs> hey. You got to stay busy, man. Got to stay active. Just like I was on the court, man. I couldn't stay still. It was all about getting it done, you know. It's about getting them dubs. You know, Jerome, earlier tonight, Edgar dropped some knowledge, uh, trivia-wise, for our fans at home. Talk a little bit about Dr. J winning the 1976 Slam Dunk Championship. We were talking a little bit also before we came on for the podcast, and I mentioned to him that your nickname actually came from another great basketball player, and that's Rick Mahorn. I don't know if the fans at home knew that. Come on now. Rick Mahorn, also Grant Long had a piece of it. They were conversating, you know, what nickname to give me. So uh, shout out to both of them. Uh, give me the nickname. I really appreciated it, you know, and I uh, I tried to live up that to that name every time I stepped out there on the court. You know, being being a guy that brings energy and toughness to the game, um, especially with a high basketball IQ, was something that was you know mandatory back in the nineties. Um, you know, today's game's a little different, but uh, those throwback games, man, special. You know, it's about it's about having a role on a team. And I tried to play that role and uh, be helpful to my teammates. One of the things I wanted to, like, before you got into the league, um, you know, you went to Georgetown and you played with the late, great John Thompson. And I wanted to know, I've actually, when, when the Big East tournament would come to the Garden and, you know, Coach Thompson was, you know, he would get there early. I would sit down and just talk to him and just, like, get that some of that knowledge. I want to know, like, how did he recruit you, and how? Why did you decide to go to Georgetown? And talk about the impact that John Thompson, you know, <laughs> did for your your life. Right. Well, first and foremost, um, I was born at Georgetown University Hospital in 1973 when Coach was hired by the Hoyas. That uh, let me just start right there with that. Um, I grew up watching uh, when I did watch basketball. On, in college basketball, I watched Georgetown. I watched Maryland. Um, I loved Georgetown because I actually thought it was an HBCU. You know, I thought it was an all-black school because they had nothing but black players and a black coach. So from that perspective, they were, you know, everybody sort of looked like me. So it made me a Georgetown fan. Um, but also growing up in the D.C. area, I didn't actually know where the campus was the <laughs> campus is sort of hidden you know it has a has a sign down there on you know when you pass by it on canal but that's all you can see because it's on the hilltop that's why they call it the hilltop and uh you know just grew up and, and just looking at that from afar just thought georgetown was just too far out of reach as i got older i heard about how hard the, you know schoolwork was there and you kind of put it off like, nah, that ain't for me, you know, and I went to JUCO and, you know, had to pay my way through school, got a job and I, I grew so seven inches after high school. You know, I prayed and got seven inches in one summer. And when I 
got those seven inches, the game changed. Like the whole world opened up from a basketball perspective because now I'm six nine, and I still had handles. I could move and I could shoot. And, you know, the streets had to pay at that point. I was looking for every street warrior out there, every combatant. I wanted to take them on. And basically, Coach Thompson recruited me off of the playground. He did not see me playing any organized basketball. There were no referees. It was nothing but elbows and bringing the rim down. And uh, he watched me play and uh, offered me a scholarship on the, on the spot. I just happened to have good enough grades to get into Georgetown. Thankful enough that, you know, my parents always made sure I was doing my schoolwork and, and really instilled in me that it was important to, to do that. And after I didn't get any scholarships coming out of high school, I knew they were right. So I, I started really focusing on it. So I got into Georgetown and um, I was the same year they recruited Allen Iverson. And uh, him and I broke out those uh, Jordan 11s with those black Georgetown jerseys. And uh, the rest is history because we were excited and uh, we played with excitement and, and flair and, and a lot of hustle and you know, those games at the Garden and the Big East Tournament were some of my fondest memories, except for when, you know, Ray Allen hit that shot. But outside of that, we had some great memories in that building. And, you know, Coach Thompson, he really impacted not only my life, but a lot of other players. I, I grew up with two parents and he he was just that same voice that they had uh, ringing in my ear, doing the right thing, um, you know, always giving it your all. And uh, the famous quote that uh, he had me stumped on, you know, when I was there at Georgetown, what he'd tell us at least once or twice a day was the man that knows how will always have a job. But the man that knows why will always be the boss. Shout out to Coach Thompson. Unbelievable story, Jerome. <laughs> when, did it, when did it hit you that you were going to be a first round pick in the NBA draft? Uh, it hit me probably right after, um, I got back from, uh, the desert classic in Phoenix where I was the MVP. I had Steve Nash on my team. I averaged 17 points, um, 12 or 13 rebounds and five assists a game. And Steve averaged 16 points and probably about seven rebounds a game, uh, seven assists a game, but he didn't have no rebounds because I got them all. So. You know, I ended up getting the MVP because we won, you know, we actually won the Desert Classic um, and uh, I got the NBA jacket. And from that standpoint, that's when my confidence went up because everybody I got invited to the draft after that uh, to the lottery for the draft. And, you know, I pretty much assumed at that point I was going to be a first round pick. So before that, you know, Coach Thompson would always keep everything kind of under wraps. Like, you know, when I got to the the pre-draft, they were like, we didn't know you, you know, you could handle the ball and we didn't know you could shoot. I'm like, well, look, when you're playing for Coach Thompson, you do whatever he asked you to do. He told me to rebound, so I rebounded. It didn't matter what he asked me to do because I wanted to be on the floor. And, um, you know, you had an All-America in the, in the post named Othello Harrington. You had a future Hall of Famer with the ball named Allen Iverson. And, uh, you know, and I was just a future first round pick. They didn't know what I was going to be. So I was just out there working. 
And, you know, when you have a lot of skills, they, they just put you out there and you figure it out. And that's what I did. I just, I just figured it out. You end up playing nine seasons in the NBA, but so much of your career success has gone beyond the game of basketball, at least on the hardwood, I would say, these days, whether it's being a global NBA ambassador, some of these other projects that you had. And then I know for me as a fan of podcasts, I'm so excited to see that you're now doing a new podcast for The Post with Sal Licata uh, for the second season here of Big Apple Buckets. Big Apple Buckets, man. We getting buckets down there, man. Edgar, Bobby, we getting buckets. And, and uh, it, it's it's good to, you know, talk a little basketball every week because, you know, it, it's fun. It, it's it, it's somewhere where my heart will always be um, watching the game, being a student of the game and uh, being a teacher of the game at this point um, with, with a lot of the younger players. As you saw my son just come into my office. Uh, a couple minutes ago, like, oh, dad's working. Yeah. <laughs> Time to go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I love it. I love it. I love the the fact that, you know, we can get out here and still talk about the game. Um, Sal and uh, and Jake, you know, great guys. And we're, you know, we're, we're shaking up the podcast world with our big apple buckets. You know, the dog pound is in the house and, uh, you know, had a lot of great guests come on Penny Hardaway. Uh, Chris Childs, Moochie Norris, these guys, some of the players I played with and uh, get to talk old school hoops and some of those stories. You know, some of the stories go back, man, and they they got some good ones. So it's it's always Chris good to, to get out my, there. Chris Childs <laughs> one of my favorites. You know, that dude Chili. Chili. <laughs> you know, yeah, I watch Chili, man. Chili's off the hook. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I told him, man, I said, I said, man, he had he had hotel, grand hotel penthouse uh, <laughs> happening in Toronto. And I was like, brother, because like when we first got traded to Toronto, or at least when I got traded, he was traded like right around the same time. And they had this hotel that, you know, it's almost like, you know, um, it's almost like the Four Seasons, but you got your own like kind of suite type condo. And I remember, you know, after like the first week, um, I had to go down to the front desk. I said, uh, I'm, I'm at the change room. They're like, is there something wrong with your room, Mr. Williams? I said, nah, I'm near, I'm near Chile. I got to get away. <laughs> I got to get away. Chile was a part. That man had parties popping every night. Yeah, he, was, yeah. he, was, he was a man of the nightlife, let me tell you. I'm a man of sleep in the night because they want energy on the court. So, uh he still get his work done on the course. So I don't, you know, some people are just built like that. I'm not one of them. <laughs> Can you talk about your time in Toronto and playing with Vince and how he changed, how you guys pretty much, you guys put Canada on the map and what did that mean for you? Man, it meant a lot. I mean, uh, Vince Carter, Antonio Davis, Alvin Williams, and my man, Mo Pete, um, you know, we had a, Charles Oakley. I mean, just a crazy starting five, right? Crazy starting five. And then we had veterans and young talent and athleticism coming off the bench. I mean, I was coming off the bench. This is my first, this is our first year after that. I was a starter for the Raptors, but that first year, me, Keon Clark, um, Tracy Murray, Chris Childs, Dell Curry. I mean, think about that. They, they, they used to tell us, they said, you know, and we used to split minutes, like literally Lenny Wilkins would give six and six. Like he wasn't going over six because he had two starting lineups. And, you know, 
team just couldn't get a breather. You know, we come in with the second unit and the second unit is actually a starting unit. Um, and that's, that was, that was, uh, some exciting basketball, you know, playing on that team, you know, getting out of the first round, taking the Philadelphia 76ers and Allen Iverson, my former teammate to the brink of game seven, them having to win it in the last minute of the game. Um, and then of course, Vince Carter missing that shot, but, um, it was just crazy exciting. I mean, this guy was a walking highlight reel. Vince Carter did things in practice that, you know, we had to shut down practice. You know how like at Rucker Park, somebody does something and everybody storms a court and, you know, you leave because you're not going to see that again. And it's like, why are we going to even continue to play? That's how it was in practice. It's like, man, we, do we really have to keep going, coach? You see what he just did? Like, it was it was fun. It was some exciting basketball. I mean, in my career, I can honestly say I played with two of the two of the most exciting players ever to play the game. Allen Iverson and Vince Carter. I mean, Vince Carter in his in his youth, in his youths, Bobby, this dude, it was nothing but the business. Allen Iverson in college and his first couple years in pro. I mean, come on. Them highlights just you know you can go back into the nba vault because they're all over jerome did it shock you that carter just kept you know playing at a high level year after year after year i mean i even think this year he could still be playing in the league well the the crazy thing is um we knew once he figured it out he'd be he'd be good to go and he did figure it out because in toronto my second and third year um, you know, he was battling knee injuries and the knee injury, right? It wasn't, <laughs> he didn't tear anything or, you know, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't, you know, tear his meniscus or anything. He just had knee pain and, and the veterans, myself and Antonio Davis, we say, hey, Vince, um, you just have to, you know, you just can't jump as high, man. You, you, you know, you're putting a lot of pressure on your knees you're going up and landing. That's just a lot of torque. And he said to us, but that's what I'm supposed to do. And we're like, well, I mean, you don't have to jump that high. You can actually, you you know, you could dunk like coming down like a foot and a half. Basically, you're you're jumping a, a little higher than everybody else in the league. And I used to tell him, man, I said, you know, Vince, I can jump and, and you know, be eye level with the rim, but I got to land. And when I land, it could be some problems if I'm, you know. So once he learned that, that you know, he didn't have to do a windmill or 360 every night, um, we knew he was going to have a long career because you can think that athleticism is so remarkable and so God-given, you know, he, he you know, being a mere mortal like every other NBA player was like, you know, getting your elbow above the rim. You know, he's getting, he's getting shoulders and necks. <laughs> Pretty much. That's, you know, how it went. You know, a global pandemic to end uh, Vince Carter's career in order for him to stop uh, high flying. I mean, just such a remarkable career. Yes, he had. Yes, he had. And uh, I'm glad he could, you know, stick around that long. Um, I always said it. I said, you know, by the time he's, you know, in his 40s, he'll be jumping like the guys that were jumping in their 30s. And that's exactly what happened. So. You know, good luck with that. Yeah, Jerome, you was one of the few players that, you know, you, you know, you played with Iverson, you played with Carter, but you played against LeBron, you played against Kobe. Um, 
you played against MJ, you know? Can, That's it. Can, can you talk about like that, like now that your career, you know, now you, you know, you're a businessman and you look back on your career? Man, I mean, just those names. I mean, I guarded each one of them um, in pivotal moments of the game. I remember in Toronto, uh, Garden Jordan after a timeout and we're up one and there's five seconds left on the clock and Lenny Wilkins just coming into the huddle and say, okay, who's Garden Jordan? And all my teammates just sort of like dropped their head and I'm like, me, I'm guarding them. They were like, yeah, JYD, you're guarding them. <laughs> and I go out there and uh, Mike does all of his patented moves, but I've read all the scouting reports and obviously he's, you know, he's, he's playing for the Wizards now. And that doesn't mean anything, but it's different between the red jersey and the blue jersey. He's still Mike. And uh, the, he, he does his fadeaway uh, from the three-point line top of the key, and the ball just goes in and out, literally like and comes out. And we win the game. And that was one of my fondest memories of, you know, being able to tell my kids, man, I guarded Jordan in the pivotal moments of the game. Now, he had 30, but we won. And I'm guarding him at the end. And, uh, you know, I remember in uh, the Staples Center guarding Kobe. And uh, I guarded him for like three plays straight. And the first play, um, I guarded him. I got him with my, my, my Mike Tyson uppercut. I used to call him my Mike Tyson uppercut because I'd, be, I'd have my hands out. And, you know, as a player gets the ball in the triangle, you know, they got to wait for the action. So I know I got a split second be before I can just do my uppercut and hit the ball out of their hand. So I, I do that to Kobe. I get the steal, right? So, all right, so that, that's, my, that's my patented move. So I get him with that one. He comes back down the next time, and he has the ball, and I jam him. I, like, get up on him real quick, jam him, and he's off balance, and, you know, he kind of gets knocked back, and, you know, he tries to do a move, but now I'm into his left hand, and, you know, I'm only giving him one way. So then he, uh, he misses that shot. So now Kobe's pissed. And I see it. He's like fuming. Next time down, switch back. Vince, you got him. He was busy. <laughs> he like, nah, JYD, I want to get you back. I'm like, nah, bro, I got to guard Robert Ory. He can't. <laughs> Robert Ory out here shooting these threes up. <laughs> so Kobe was ragging on me after the game. Like, man, I was trying to come back at you. I was like, I know you was. I, I had already used up all my tricks. So now, it, you know, the refs was getting ready to switch that up. You know, Kobe was getting ready to get the calls. You know, so I used all my junk, you know, my junkyard dog Scooby snacks up on that play. And then LeBron, right? LeBron, um, I, I, you know, he was, he was younger. It was a younger LeBron. And I just saw all the athleticism. You know, I'm guarding him, and it's, and it's like he didn't know what to do. You could see it. You know, he didn't know what to do. Um, and I knew what to do to kind of throw him off. And, you know, he, he was a lot easier to deal with back in those days. And when I say easier, um, he was taking open shots. He was taking open driving lanes. You know, he wasn't getting too creative. You know, obviously now he's a, he's a IQ juggernaut and just so proud that, you know, he's, done you know well by the league and the fans and really been an ambassador to this game i mean this guy you know not only 
is one of the top players ever to play uh, and arguably in the top. He's definitely in the top five. And I'm not going to get into who's one or two or three, but he's in the top five. I'm, I'm going to put the junkyard dog stamp on LeBron being in top five of all time. I put him in. I said, I said, uh, one. You said number one. Yeah. You said number one. Like I said, I'm not going to argue. I'm not arguing, yeah. but you know, you know, Mike, I played and guarded Mike. I, That's I, what I'm saying, bro. They, That's they what called I'm saying. him Black Jesus for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's the son of man, right? <laughs> but anyways, uh, LeBron, he was just so gifted, and I'm I'm really proud of the fact that he's done it the right way. He's he's represented the players um, in a way that uh, is remarkable because he gives back to the community. I really appreciate what he does for the kids and and uh, the schools and education. And he's, he's actually put his name on the line just so many times for society and movements. And I, and I think that that's something that, you know, the players of the past didn't, you know, some of them didn't do. Um, so for his era, I give him a huge shout out for that and uh, for what he's done. And, you know, he's led guys like Chris Paul and Carmel Anthony, Dwayne Wade, who also stepped out there as well. And you see a lot of the younger guys now taking their lead. So, you know, it started with LeBron. I was going to say, but when you was playing, when did you start seeing a shift where the players were started getting the power? Because I remember you with the Knicks and you was like, you was out there, you were talking. So when did you start to see it like, you know, things are like things are shifting our way? Um, you know, man, I think when, uh, things started shifting, uh, I believe to the players when, 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 you know, the three, you know, the big three in Miami, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, I felt like that was a major shift because you had the whole ecosystem of the league, um, change. Chris Bosh was a franchise player in Toronto. Dwayne was a franchise player in Miami. And LeBron was a franchise player in Cleveland. And for all of them to be in their prime, I mean, we saw, you know, in our era, Charles Barkley, Scottie Pippen, right? Clyde Drexler, Hakeem Olajuwon get together at the end. (laughs) They were all old. They could never get on the court at the same time, (laughs) you know, with injuries. But, this is where I saw the shift because these guys are all young. You can't, you know, they're in their primes. They're winning, you know, games. They got chemistry. They want to play together. They enjoy playing together. And so now all the other teams are starting to see, well, in order to do this, in order to compete, we're going to have to do the same thing. And I think that that's when it shifted because now teams had to adjust to that model. That model changed the course of the NBA um, because, you know, from a from an economical perspective, you know, Miami jumped to the top of the leaderboard on, you know, games watched, right? Because, you if, you know, you weren't going to miss a Miami Heat game. You, you, you know, we're going to still have our favorite players outside of them, but it took Cleveland out of the market it took Toronto out of the market, right, for a few years. So 
that's where I thought I think the shift it shifted to the players because those three players got together and agreed prior to free agency. Yeah, Jerome, I, I didn't get a chance to make a quick comment before because I know how much Edgar loves LeBron James. But uh, my my one quick comment I was going to make about Jordan uh, was just simply this, and it's an argument that I will use probably till the end of eternity as great as LeBron James is, and I'm a big fan, is what separated Jordan was not only crunch time, but for me, in his era, he was not only the scoring champ, the best offensive player on the floor, but he was also the defensive player of the year. You can make a case at his height, at his zenith, he was not only the best offensive player, but the best defensive player in the game. And that, to me, as great as LeBron James has been, that's something that he's never been at one time. Maybe, again, top five in both categories, but I don't think he's ever been that dynamic on both ends of the floor that you can unequivocally say this is the best player in the league. Well, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, you know, his numbers were off the charts from taking game-winning shots and tough moments. Um, it, it's it's pretty remarkable what, what Mike was able to do. But I think from especially the old school guys, right, the game has changed in, in a way that, you know, it, it, you know, players are allowed to now flop and and kind of get into a little bit of the theatrics of basketball because it has evolved into that, right? So when we see LeBron, you know, engage in that kind of activity, um, it sort of like throws us off as being old school guys because we grew up with Mike going in there and taking like shots to the head, you know, I mean, just getting abused. And his response was, I'm going to the weight room. His response was, I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to, you know, fight through all this. And that was with the Pistons, bad boys who were out to kill him. Then he transitioned from there. And now who's he going up against? The Knicks, Charles Oakley, Anthony Mason. Patrick Ewing, like John Starks, like these are thugs. These aren't, you know, soft guys. They had to, they had to go through New York. So it's just, it's just a little different now. And when you can overcome those things and still score and still get fouled and, and, and still, you know, produce championships, you know, three in a row, take two years off, come back and win another three in a row. That, that right there, Whew. I mean, can you imagine he just played right on through and, and decided, you know, he wasn't going to play some baseball in his prime? Come on Black now, Jesus. Edgar. He he's playing, base he's he playing baseball in his prime. He needed a break, though. He was going through a lot back then. Man, he needed a break. I know we all saw it now. Yeah. But uh, at the time, we was all pissed. We were like, Mike, don't please. Please, what we going to do? You can't leave us like this. <laughs> And, and I thought it was good because, you know, Keem got them two back-to-backs because Keem was a juggernaut. I played with Dream Shaker. Shout out to Dream. Shout out to my man, Dream. That's it. So you, you know, we're talking about, like, t tough teams and, you know, uh, you know, the big three. What do you think about the new big three in uh, Brooklyn? Man, this right here, this is, this is made for TV, Edgar. This is made for TV right here, man. I mean, you, you got – 
all right, you want to hear my theory about why why Kyrie isn't isn't playing right now? Uh huh. I tell you, man. I tell you. You know he. You know he sold the most Nikes. You know that this year, eight hundred million dollars worth of shoes, brother. Wow. Eight hundred million dollars worth of shoes. Now I don't know what his pay is. Thirty-three million a year. Is that what it is? Brooklyn. Yeah, thirty-three. Okay. No, 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 no. That's 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 how much he gets paid by the NBA. Yeah, oh, we know no, that figure. I don't know. I'm talking about by Nike. But yeah. then wearing them Nikes, them Kate, them, them Kyrie's, because my son got like ten pairs in his closet, uh-huh. you know. And I'm like, man, do you, do you do you need how many pairs do you need? Like, he's got Kyrie, KD, those are, and and he got he's got like three or four Lebrons. That Lebron, you know, but Kyrie, that's his shoe. And I'm like, this man got eight hundred million. Yeah, he needs a break. Then he got to take he got to air out his mind. You know, you're getting 800, 800 million in sales. You're number one. You know, I didn't hear about his billion dollar deal with Nike. I heard about LeBron, though, you know. But anyways, let's get back to the topic. The question was, what's up with this new big three? Bobby C, this is what I got for you, brother. This is now made for TV. Brooklyn basketball. You know, the soap opera is there. The storylines are there. You know, I've already seen the the, the memes, the memes, whatever you want to call it, with 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 the chubby belly, James Harden. <laughs> you know, they got him all over New York. I already done seen him. I'm like, man, they got the bearded man just jacked up right now, and you know he gonna come out the gate with a forty piece chicken nugget for all them New Yorkers. You know, <laughs> just so he can you know get that get that off his chest. But man, can you imagine if these guys have chemistry like? LeBron, Chris Bosh, and 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 Dwayne Wade. I mean, did who going who's gonna beat who is gonna beat these guys? I mean, let's 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 be honest. I mean, Lakers, you got a you got a chance, you got a chance, but I'm after AD and 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 LeBron, I'm 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 trying to figure out who who is guarding that other guy. <laughs> but it's about sacrifice. Who's gonna sacrifice? That's my thing. Like those, like with, when you look at Miami, you know, Bosh sacrificed. Bosh you know, did sacrifice, and he changed his game a little bit. And 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 D Wade changed his game on the second season. He like changed his game. Able, who's gonna be able to do that now? Who? Yeah, and and I think the key to that Edgar is also who who is going to be the guy, like. Cause you know right. they had to. That that's who's supposed to, Bobby. I agree, but I mean, you know, they both. I mean, you got all of them there, and you, you know, know where there's a where there's a yin, you need the yang, and you know, yeah, like to Edgar's point, you got to have somebody take a back seat. You know, before you came on with us, we had Baron Davis join us, and uh, we had a little bit of a good time. A little bit critical of some of the remarks that I made about Harden, and again, big fan of James Harden, no doubt about it. But I think, you know, echoing the same sentiments that a lot of the critics have probably made, maybe fairly or unfairly about Harden. But again, the criticism has been that he's been so incredible in the regular season. He's had some moments in the playoffs, but that he tends to fade in crunch time and in some of these bigger games. And the question, I guess, would be whether or not he's going to continue with that uh, narrative with the Nets in the postseason or whether or not he can kind of break away from that stigma. And if it's a good thing that he ends up partnering 
with someone like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, who, of course, have such impressive postseason resumes. The resumes are there. And you know what? That's that's what makes this so intriguing, because you already have two guys with rings. There's nothing to prove. Right. But just like when KD went to Golden State, he was ringless. Right. And and and. You know, Steph was sitting over there like, hey, bro, you know, come on to the party, you know, get get some of this, get some of this hardware. They're going to be looking at James and saying the same thing. If I mean, can you imagine a hungry James Harden where when we put those three on one side of the court and nobody can double team? You got to stay home. Oh, hey, get your popcorn out. Dog pounds about to start eating some popcorn. Some freshly, you know, microwave butter on top because it's gonna be snack time. Snack okay. time is going to dance for Joe Harris, Jerome. <laughs> Bang. You know, and then like look, Joe can be the you know, John Paxson of the crew. You know, just wait around, wait around. Defense loves them to sleep, then boom, you wide open for that, for that, you know, we need we need this three bucket, you know, to just Take us over the top. We're only up by one. Here's Joe. Knockdown. Come on. That I'm telling you. I was gonna say, Jerome, I, I always looked at you as somebody in the locker room that I was like, one day I was like, you know what? Jerome's gonna be a coach or Jerome's gonna be a GM. He's gonna get involved somehow, some way down the road. So <laughs> I would say, you know, when you say you, you know, you look at the uh, the big three and you Put your general manager's hat. The Nets gave up the next seven years. They do not own a first round pick. Would you have Man. done that? To the nope, to the nope, to the nope. There's no way I would have done it because you already had a good team. You had a good team. Now, um, that's one thing about being a GM, though. You roll the dice. You know that I, you don't really know until you're in the situation. Right. You see the situation. Um, I believe uh, Dwindle had a had a, you know, had a, had a hand in that. If he hadn't gotten hurt towards ACL, I mean, would the, would would they have pulled the trigger on that? I don't you know, I don't know. Because, I mean, I'm looking at it. That's a good team. You know, that's a team that's going to go deep in the playoffs, um, possibly win the Eastern Conference Championship with what they had so by giving up the farm from me myself as a gm i probably would not have done it but i think when you're in certain situations um you you have to you have to make some you know some gut sacrifices and i think that seven years is a long time man so how you do you care? How do you justify the trade? Is it one title, two titles, two finals appearances, one title? I, like we and Bobby talked about that earlier. Yeah, I mean, are they still trying to get a title? The answer is yes. So at this point, they 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 doing the you know Toronto Raptors. You, it's been proven. It's worked. One year with Kawhi, boom, ring. There, you know, now Toronto's in that upper echelon of organizations that have won an NBA championship. 
And as you know, in this era, just like when Mike was at the top of the throne, LeBron James is at the top of the throne. Steph Curry was at the top. So you're, you know, these guys are the guys you're, you're thinking of championship basketball around. So you're going to have to come up with something out of this world to beat these guys. You know, we thought LA Clippers might've had a chance last year. Didn't we all think that? And what happened? What did we see? We still saw LeBron in the finals and popping champagne at the end because he's got Anthony Davis. And at the end of the day, those two right there, who going to stop them for seven games? You got to stop these guys for seven games. And that's what I see in Brooklyn right now. I'm like, man, so let me get this straight. You win game one, and then they make their adjustments. And then you got those three guys that have made the adjustments. They win game two. Then you come back and make adjustments. You better win game three. Like, that's a no. You lose game three to those two? Those three? Come on, Edgar. Get your popcorn out, man. (laughs) Jerome, uh, we wanted to touch base a little bit on some of these other projects that you're working on. I mentioned it earlier in our interview about just all the great things that you've done as a global NBA ambassador, whether it's basketball without borders or shooting for peace. But now you've founded a a new project, and I was hoping for the fans that are listening in or watching that you could tell us a little bit about uh, the acronym PIP and ultimately how it is breaking the cycle of poverty for many of the young athletes that you're working with, with alumni pros, global sports. Come on, Bobby. I mean, I've been sitting around like everybody stuck in the house. Look at this layer behind me, right? This is, <laughs> this has got all the JYD memories from jerseys to, you know, I, I was talking to my man AI the other day and he was mad. His Jersey wasn't hanging up. And I was like, man, you see my much spaces. I don't have enough space to hold your Jersey. He was mad at me. Shout out to AI. So I'm sitting here and I'm watching all of the not only coronavirus things that are going on, but everybody just getting so, um, you know, emotionally down. The mental health of everybody and and then still is is not good. But to see um, laws potentially being changed, I just started sitting in my room and just thinking of all the things that. I went through in my career and how I wanted to help the next generation. And, you know, that's, that's a tough thing because you don't really know where to start. You don't know what to do. So, um, I started off thinking I was going to do virtual training and virtual training was something that during COVID, you know, we, we definitely needed to cause get, got to get the kids out. And then from virtual training, um, I started tapping into the potential of doing video games, right? Um, With players, because back in the day, my man, uh, Ed O'Bannon went to court for video games in the NCAA and won the case. To this day, I still haven't gotten a check from that case (laughs) because I was in that video game. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, man, we really got to work on something for these kids with, name, image, and likeness because their uh, intellectual properties are being affected. And it's something that's gone on for generations now. And that's when I came up with PIP, player, 
intellectual property. Um, these guys, myself, others, we've been playing for such a long time that it's it's uh, the system is set up. You know, you come out of high school, you're in college or now G League or what have you, and then you go to the NBA. But you can't maximize your, you know, your NIL name, image and likeness like a tennis player. You can't do like a baseball player, um, a golf player. These are all things that for basketball players and football players, the ecosystem is different. The monetization is different. You know, the NCAA from a basketball perspective and a football perspective is a multi-billion dollar industry and players and their families have no, um, no inroads to that economic uh, development. And if you take Silicon Valley, for instance, right, they go out and they seek the top talent all across the globe. And what they do when they find that top talent at whatever age, those kids are making six, seven figures from the jump. Look it up. So that's a talented person. And that person is being taken from whatever community, given the tools they need to succeed, and then being paid accordingly for their talent. And then that talent can actually go back to their community and, and, and reinvest and, uh, you know, make it better. Well, that's the same thing that African-Americans and minorities and lower income, lower socioeconomic families would love to have the ability to do. But what happens? Let me tell you, AAU basketball, kids are being recruited now in middle school. Jerry, uh, Jerry Easter out of Chicago, the number one eighth grader, already got two offers. Right. He got an offer first round. Uh, I mean, uh, Division one basketball in the sixth grade. Well, what do you think is happening at his middle school? Well, I can tell you, most basketball players. When they are able to fill a gym. Like a Jerry Easter. Well, they become part of the ecosystem, but their parents do not benefit. The neighborhood does not benefit. Their communities and their families do not benefit. The only people that benefit is the institutions. And he's passed from middle school to high school. And when he gets to high school, the same ecosystem repeats itself. Well, what do you think this kid is learning along the way? He's saying, I'm going to be a basketball player. So is he being taught to read, write, uh, think for himself? plug in the right um, uh, education. No. Then what happens? He's just got to get through his SAT and get to the, to the, to the next institution, which is the NCAA and college basketball. And once he goes there, if he is a, a, a first round draft pick, like a Jerome Williams or someone else, well, he doesn't have to stay long, does he? Because he's part of that ecosystem. He's there to fill seats and, 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 and deliver those billion dollar sponsors that are promised viewers and that are promised 
butts and seats. And there you have it. You have an ecosystem set up on the backs of minorities that can't really fend for themselves. They don't have people talking for them. They don't have people representing them. But thankful enough, hopefully, uh, the NCAA, well, the federal government, number one, will introduce a bill that will start to make some inroads for some of these minorities and some of these families that don't have anybody to speak for them. They don't have anything. So Alumni Pros Global Sports is hopefully going to be one of those uh, catalysts that can speak up and speak to what these athletes go through. Because I can tell you, um, as an athlete, I was, I didn't go through a lot of what I saw my teammates go through because I um, grew late. So what I learned how to do was do both. I learned how to go to class and perform on the basketball court. When I got to Georgetown, that's higher education. I can tell you that I had a chance to see that ecosystem take place, you know, and be one of the future first round draft picks and having the pressure of, I have to study for this test on the bus because it's the, this is the only way I'm going to be able to pass and, and to get to my degree is I have to study on the bus on the way to the game. I got to pick my book up after the game. And when I get to my room, I, you know, I got to eat and then I got to get back on my studying. And that's something that, you know, the normal student athlete, you know, doesn't have to do because my pressure was they were people coming to see Allen Iverson, Jerome Williams, and Othello Harrington as the starters of that team and as the future NBA prospects every night. I mean, that that mental pressure alone, you know, being on TV, seeing yourself, seeing seeing the reaction of everybody and seeing the pressure that's put on the coach, on my coach, Coach Thompson, for wins and rankings. It's the ecosystem that's really um, not fair the way it's the way it's divvied out right now. And that's where the balance comes in. And that's where I'm, I'm just happy that, you know, hopefully this next generation, you know, there'll be some equality there. Well, I, I, one of the things, one, I love it Two, um, it's almost something similar that I did um, like this summer, obviously because of the pandemic, there was no basketball. So we, we did like workouts and stuff like that. But then we started doing a, uh, virtual talks where I would use guys that I know from the locker room, you know, the Q Riches, the Chris, you know, Chris Canty's, you know, the Langston Galleries, where they would talk to the kids about how they got to where they are and talk about their journey and financial literacy. Definitely want to talk to you more about this offline, about <laughs> maybe combining forces or something like that, because we, we, we got something going where we talk to the kids, but mostly more than anything, letting the parents know, because I, we learn more than anything. Parents don't know, especially parents. when they have a, a special kid. That's, that's right. Talented, and they've that's never right. been in this situation before. So definitely would love to talk to you off more offline about this, maybe combining forces, something like that, just to talk to some, you know, more kids and parents and 
on a Zoom call or something like that, just so you can let them know. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've uh, um, the one thing that I didn't know as a player that I learned was when I became the head coach of Finley Prep and coached Kelly Oubre, Dylan Brooks, Chris Wood, um, O'Shea Brissett, Jonah Bolden, right? These are all NBA, you know, Rashard Vaughn. These are all NBA players, many of them first rounders. And seeing their stories and also being involved with their, you know, um, lives in a, in, a, in a bubble, so to speak, at Finley Prep. And then watching their, the way they interacted with the AAU part of their careers, that taught me a lot. Because I didn't grow up in the AAU era. It was right when AAU was getting started. So our AAU was the streets. You know, we didn't have organized basketball. You didn't have to pay to play. Now AAU is a billion-dollar industry. And, again, the ecosystem is set up. So the Jerome Williams of today, he doesn't pay to be on a team. He gets free shoes, free jerseys, right? And he gets chauffeured around to all the games, well, what is that telling him? How does he learn? He learns, man, I'm, I'm placed on this earth to play basketball. He doesn't value the education the way he should. And it's built that way because they don't want you to be educated. They want you to come in and have parents who aren't educated and don't understand that you are the ecosystem, right? And that's the beauty thing about today's player is now – to your point, Edgar, they're now taking control. Now the players have more control. They say where I want to go. You know, James Harden said, I want to go to Brooklyn. And they said, no, you can't go to Brooklyn. He said, I want to go to Brooklyn. <laughs> no, you can't go to Brooklyn. Where is he at right now? Brooklyn. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's kind of good in a way that these players see this because they'll see that they do, you know, they can call some shots and they can do it. But we got to now translate that to our younger kids and show them how much their education and educating, to your point, Edgar, the parents. Because the parents a lot of times put their kids in, 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 in these situations unknowingly, yep. you know, not, not, not doing any fault to their own, but just not knowing the information. Yeah, Jerome, I, I would say definitely a long overdue alternative to much of the traditional sports representation that has gone on in the past. Absolutely. Um, it's not traditional because Alumni Pros Global Sports is here for all athletes and all sports. Now, my favorite, obviously, what I know the most of is basketball, but lacrosse players, soccer players, baseball, softball, volleyball, you know, football, obviously. They're all part of this ecosystem, wrestling. And um, those some of those sports I mentioned are a little different. Um, but at the end of the day, um, players will now be able to monetize their name, image, and likeness. And that is going to change the game because it's going to force parents now to be educated. It's going to force them to say, hey, you know, I see Bobby has a deal over here with, uh, you know, tropical smoothie. Why can't Sarah, you know, have GNC? Um, you know, so it's those kind of things like that's going to open up 
the possibilities. Um, you know, my son, Jeremiah, right? Shout out to New Balance. New Balance, he's, he's 10 years old. New Balance sent him a box of gear. <laughs> and I said, now, this is because of what you have done, not what you're doing. And that's what players in the NBA figure out really quickly. When they sign $230 million contracts, they're getting paid for what they have done, not what they're going to do. They're getting paid for what they have done. And that's their intellectual property because their intellectual property had built up enough value. So when my son's 10 and he's getting free shoes and free gear, I'm like, that's because of what you've done. Now, if you keep going, the stakes are going to get higher. You're going to you're going to build up more value because someone has already shown and seen that they value enough to say, man, I'm going to I'm going to invest in this kid. Jerome, we wanted to thank you for taking the time with us tonight. You know, congratulations on the new podcast and then, you know, founding this new project. Um, you know, I, I know you weren't part of the show earlier when Baron Davis took offense to my curtains, but I, I really think they are changing the game as well. Um, I was going to get, you know, in closing, just going to get your thoughts on whether or not my curtains are changing the game of podcasting. Hey, it is changing the game because he's all about the ambiance. You got the, you got the, you know, the Walt Fraser jersey in the back. You got the globe on the basketball, the United States globe on it. It, it you know, the curtains. I mean, you didn't even throw. I didn't really take. You know, didn't really catch me till you till now. I'm looking at it like, oh, those are curtains. Huh? Oh, I see. You know, I see over there. You know, Bill. Hey, look, you got to have something. Like, look at Edgar's backdrop. He's just playing games, right? That you, I. My eyes are attracted to this Spalding ball and the New York Knicks jersey and the hat, right? And the curtains. Edgar, you got to work on your backdrop, bro. I need a picture in the back, you know, a family photo, some books, something. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant, you know, because the people in the back, they're trying to figure out what's in the back of JYD. I see a Nick logo on a chair. That, yeah, he got – it looks a little hectic back there. It looked like a big stream TV. Yeah, I got something. I'll throw you something in the back, man. It's a podcast. You got to have your viewers got to be able to see. We're stepping into the arena, man. Where's yeah. your arena, Edgar? Exactly. Exactly. You're in the arena, oh, man. You're in, you look like you're in a closet. <laughs> you know, you're doing the podcast. You're doing the business. Do, do you anticipate you becoming maybe down the road a general manager? Coaching, is that in your plans uh, or are you just going to be a boss? Okay, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's going on. So there's this new league called the Basketball League, the TBL. They got 35 team market owners, right? Steve Francis just bought a franchise um, in Houston. Shout out to Steve. And um, I bought a franchise for my son because I wanted to teach him how to be an owner. I asked him what he wanted to be in the, when he grows up. He said, Dad, I want to play in the NBA. And I said, well... You know, that's cool, but how about this? I said, if I gave you a choice, if you could play on a team or be a team owner, which would you choose? He said, Dad, I want to play on a team. I said, let me ask you this again. If you can play on a team and be a team owner, he said, well, I want to play on a team, Dad. I want to, I want to, I said, son, okay, let me, let me explain this to you. He's 10, right? I said, if you own the team, who chooses the players? 
And I said, he said, uh, I, I guess the owner. I said, bingo. So what he said, oh, yeah, oh, dad, yes, I want to own the team because then I can play on the team. I said, exactly, son. If you own it, you can play. So I bought him a team in the TBL. It's called the Vegas Ballers, the same name as his AAU team. We're looking forward to our first combine tryout coming up here uh, February the 7th out here in uh, Vegas. And, uh, you know, he's he's learning how to, you know, hire his staff, his operations, his coaching staff. We got James Hollywood Robinson, uh, f- you know, former Portland Trailblazer as his head of scouting. We got uh, potentially C.J. Watson as a community director. You know, he played for the Indiana Pacers. He's got um, potentially, and I'm going to throw this name out here. He won't get mad at me because I talked to him. Jason Richardson is potentially the head coach of the team. So, I mean, he got a juggernaut of talent all around him. And the thing I like about the TBL is it gives uh, NBA players opportunities because there's only so, so many jobs. You got the G League and you got the NBA. But there's, you know, Cliff Livingston is coaching a team out in Indiana in the TBL. Steve Francis just hired Moochie Norris. Shout out to my man, Moochie. Uh, for his Houston team. Um, Charlie Bell is coaching the Flint team um, up in Michigan. And, you know, he went to Michigan State. So that's that's cool. So it's giving guys opportunities that played the NBA, have knowledge of the game to get involved. And I think that that's important. And I and I really uh, cherish that. So to your point, Edgar, am I going to be coaching and president, general man, stuff like, man, my, my son's recruiting me right now. But I told him, son, I'm too busy. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, buy your mother these new shoes that she keeps telling me about. And I tell her, look, when I do this, I got to make some money to get you them shoes. And he's trying to, you know, dad, I, I need to negotiate with you. No, you can't. Can't negotiate with me right now. I got work to do. But uh, yeah, he, he's trying to get me behind the scenes right now. I'm, I'm, I'm giving I'm his advisor. Right. I'm, I'm telling him, hey, do that. Do that. You know, hey, he uh, it's so funny because we were in the gym. And I actually play against a lot of the pros out here in Vegas, right? So me and Lance Stevenson, we were in the gym, you know, wrecking shop. Shout out to Lance, you know, make him dance. Stevenson, right? We're in there in the gym in Vegas working out and we're on a team and we beat like all these pros like five games straight. So I said, Jeremiah, who do you like in the gym? Who are you going to invite to your tryout? So he's like, dad, I take, I take number 10, number five. He's like, number three, he can't play. I don't want him. I'm sitting here like, there you go. That, 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 yep. Man after my own heart. Chip off so, the old block. So the last question. And the, uh, what's like the pay structure for the TBL? So the pay structure is uh, simply they get paid on a monthly basis. And this is like minor league. So you get, you know, anywhere from tiers of $500 a month all the way up to, you know, $1,500, $2,000, just depending. The, the the budgets are usually typically anywhere between eighty dollars to $100,000 for a team and a franchise. Franchise costs are about $200,000. But what keeps the cost low is that you don't have to fly, right? All the team markets are within a three to four hour drive. Right. You got Albany, New York has a team. So they have they have a tri-state team. So um, these teams are close, close together so they don't have to uh, get on planes and they're within driving distance. So keeps the cost low and uh, your ticket sales are, you know, right around that ten dollar, ten dollar mark for tickets. So, yeah, you got uh, 
you got ways you can you can you can make it work sponsorships and everything um you know they they have uh you know tv deal that's that's imminent you know just like with the big three you know whenever you have new markets and this is a market right after um right after final four that the, the tbl starts up so what i'm thinking is depending on how this new ncaa ruling goes you could have college players that actually play on the weekends in the tbl now think about that name image and likeness you know let them go to work let them let them earn a living right so wow. i hope to see tbl and ncaa hint hint link up and uh you know, get these guys the opportunities to to play. Jerome, in closing, where can fans engage you, whether it's social media or website, or where can they find more information about all of these things we just discussed? Oh, man, at Junkyard Dog JW. That's where you can find me 24-7, seven days a week on Twitter and Instagram. And at the Vegas Ballers, you know, on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um you know, the alumni pros, you're going to see a lot of us. Just keep your keep your ears to the streets because we're coming to help uh, athletes all over the globe and, you know, really just give them and their families the opportunity to, you know, make money off of themselves. Time is changing, Edgar. Time is changing. I will call you tomorrow about that. I will call you tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know, got my number. Appreciate you, Bobby. Appreciate Shout out, you. man. I love your backdrop and your curtains. Edgar, you got to do a better job, man. Next time I come on the show, I better see something in the back. Don't Later. pound. Later. <laughs> see you, man. Later, JYD. That was great, man. That was really terrific. Uh, interview with Jerome Williams and uh, excited to uh, eventually, I guess, touch base with Oakley, but I think we've gone, uh, we've gone a little long tonight, Ed. So <laughs> this is a record. We'll probably, save, we'll probably save Oak for another time. Yeah, this is a record for me. If Oak, if Oak would have texted me now, it would have been like, nah, I wouldn't even reply. <laughs> well, we've definitely given the fans their money's worth tonight, uh, a little over two hours at this point. So we just kind of want to get some uh, closing thoughts, I guess, uh, you know, uh, maybe two cents from you, Ed, on both uh, some of the comments from Barron and Jerome tonight. Nah, uh, a lot of good information from both of, both of them. Um, the whole James Harden thing, Barron definitely made a point. I, you know, I definitely disagree with you as far as like, you know, James Harden has taken his team to the Western Conference Finals. Yes, he hasn't made it to the finals. I know personally, you know, I'm not an athlete, but I've been around the Knicks. You know, I was around the Knicks for 20 years. I know how hard it is for a team just to make it to the NBA Finals. Absolutely. You know, making it to the Eastern Conference Finals or the Western Conference Finals, that's a big deal. And he's done that. The only thing he hasn't done is win a chip. So maybe a little bit harder, hard on him on that. But I, I get what you're talking about. You know, the only thing I would say, Ed, and, and again, I, I, it's so crazy to even be having this conversation because I'm such a big Harden fan. But, you know, there's got to be some legs to the conversation about, you know, how he is in the locker rooms because, you know, there's no doubt about it that he he held Houston hostage here to get rid of him, um, to be shipped out of town, whether it was to the Nets or to the Sixers. And I think clearly this entire time, even before the season started, it was all about Brooklyn. That's where he wanted to go. And that's fine. Again, we talked about it tonight. You know, this is how the league has become, where it is now officially a player's league. Players are dictating 
the flow of what's happening. I mean, LeBron has been doing it for years, kind of almost as the coach of his teams. But when it comes to Harden, you know, these last couple of seasons, he wasn't happy with, you know, with Chris Paul. It didn't seem like he was happy with John Wall. Um, wasn't happy last year with Russell Westbrook. Uh, wasn't happy with some of the coaches that he had. So I think it might be a fair thing to bring up when it when it when it comes to James Harden, as great a player as he is, and there's no denying how great he is. He's an MVP. Um, he's been a three-time scoring champ, been a multiple-time All-Star. He's definitely one of the best players in the league, at least offensively. But you got to question maybe some of the character. You have to question, I think, you know, some of the fact that he hasn't shown up in some of those bigger games. Uh, and again, maybe Barron's right. Maybe he's just running out of gas. But that's what everybody says about that style of play, that D'Antoni's never going to be able to win a championship, and he hasn't been able to do so even if he's been close as a head coach. And some of the players that play that style of basketball, whether it's Harden or even Russell Westbrook, haven't been able to win championships. I'm just going to keep it short. We'll see. I hope they do. I, I want to see them win. I mean, so. I, I, you know, like I said, like, you know, I don't know. You know, my thing is like, you know, I go what the media says is one thing. I don't know what type of person he was in the locker room. You know, I wasn't there. I, you know, you just hear stories. But you know what? Well, all those stories, he still got to the Western Conference Finals. So Great player. So that says a lot, you know. So, you know, him and Russell, did they really work last year? No. But, you know, last year was like, you know, I, you know, last year, you know, they played well. Then you had the break. Then they started playing again. Just last year, there's an asterisk from last year a little bit, you know. So, I, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of doubt. I mean, why do you think, and again, we are, are up against it in terms of time, but just in closing here, why do you think he at times doesn't, he's not in game shape, doesn't look like he's in game shape, you know? So, and that's not, this is not the first time that that's happened. That is the disappointing part. So I think he's going to be locked in. I'm sure that he's going to get himself in game ready because he knows, it, I mean, there's a lot on the line right now. He's playing with a big three. The media, there's going to be more media scrutiny with the Brooklyn Nets than they ever seen ever. You know, I, you know, New York, the Knicks will always be, you know, the top dog as far as media wise. But now, you know, I think people are going to be focusing a little bit, wait, a little bit more on Brooklyn. So he's going to just have to step his game up. See, I, I think that's just some of the things that contribute to that narrative. When you see him not in, in shape, when you see him, you know, forcing his way out of Houston, when you see him having problems with other stars that they bring in, and I know that they've been close in Houston, but that's, you know, that kind of contributes to some of the things we spoke about tonight. And definitely not trying to take shots at James Harden or upset Baron Davis, Edgar. I mean, I love Baron Davis, so appreciate him coming on the show, and Jerome Williams, too. And uh, I guess that's a good time to – to close this off, because we've kept people on, uh, we've kept people in the arena long enough tonight. Edgar. Yeah, we definitely did a full game, and we'll be back next Thursday. It'll be a halftime show compared to uh, <laughs> with with Charles Oakley. Probably that'll, that'll be the game plan. If we can find Oakley somewhere here in the uh, basketball world, we'll have him on uh, step in the arena. Thanks for joining us tonight, guys. Later. See you next time.